Welcome to Conversations on Wealth, a podcast dedicated to helping Canadians with your total financial picture. I'm Sarah Widmeyer, Director of Wealth Strategies at Richardson Wealth, and I'd like to welcome back John Wirlow, founder of the Value Builder System, an online tool to help business owners improve the value of their company. John has authored a series of books to help business owners build, accelerate, and harvest the value of their company. These include the 2011 bestseller, Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You. In 2015, John released The Automatic Customer, Creating a Subscription Business in Any Industry. And most recently, The Art of Selling Your Business, Winning Strategies and Secret Hacks for Exiting on Top, published in 2021. John is also the host of Built to Sell Radio, rated as one of the 10 best podcasts for business owners by Forbes. Welcome, John. Nice to be back, sir. So before we get started, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to our previous episode with John if you haven't heard it yet. So John, help me paint the picture. We have a business owner who's built a successful company. They're now contemplating their exit strategy. What factors can lead to a happy and lucrative business exit? First of all, I don't think exiting is what any entrepreneur wants to do. And I think if they're thinking about exit, I would start to think about it differently. I think most entrepreneurs who've built a successful company are hardwired for achievement. They are going to be bored silly in retirement. So I think when we use the word exit, I think they're going to vomit. I think they are going to <laughs> just really... No, I, I just think that it's like death. I mean, it's like yeah. they don't want to exit, what they are trying to do, I think, in most cases is go on to a new chapter, a new exciting chapter. And that could be starting another business. It could be getting involved in philanthropy. It could be writing a book, you know, whatever it is that, that they are really passionate and excited about. But I think the biggest mistake that entrepreneurs make, and we've actually seen this in the research, Sarah, is they think about exit and, and wanting to kind of get out of their business. And we refer to those as push factors, right? So the things that are pushing you out of your business are things like government red tape, legislation, employees, you know, all, the, all the stuff that drive business owners crazy. And eventually it just kind of reaches an you know, boiling point and they say, okay, that's it. I'm out. I want to sell. And oftentimes that's the biggest reason they end up regretting the sale of their business is they're all push as opposed to pulling to something else. And so I think anybody who feels like they want to exit should really spend a lot of time thinking about their pull factors. So those are the opposite of push factors, right? Those are the things that are exciting them about the future. It's not golf, most likely. Uh, it's probably going to be something else that you're really passionate about. Maybe it's another business. You know, maybe it's a, it, it is a lifestyle thing, but really galvanizing that. I, I remember I, on my podcast, episode 100, I don't know why I remember the number, but it was with a guy named Sean Oshman. And Sean had built a, a little IT services company, not a big company, like a couple of million dollars in revenue, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars in profit. So good, good small business, but nothing spectacular. And he was 39 and he'd always dreamt of living on a sailboat. <laughs> and he was sort of uh, this kind of precipice of this milestone birthday. And he still, you know by the time I'm 40, I want to be living on a sailboat. So what does he do? He goes and hires a broker to sell his company. And he sells his company, I think it was 2.6 times profit. So again, pretty common for a very small business to sell for you know, two to three times profit. That's a very common outcome. 
And I interviewed Sean after the fact. And I said, Sean, like, how do you feel about it after? And I was kind of waiting for him to say, oh, I was kind of disappointed in the value. And he, and he said, I'm happy as a clam. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, you get 2.6 is like, it's not 10 times EBITDA. Like it's a, it's a relatively modest multiple. He said, yeah, but John, you don't understand. And I said, I said what, what, do you, what don't I understand, Sean? And he said, I live on a sailboat. <laughs> and it was just a good little reminder for me yeah. that although, look, I wrote, I, you know, I wrote a book on the topic. I have a company. It's all about value building. So I'm, a, I'm all about value building. But it's a good reminder for me that building the value of company is important for sure. But if all you're thinking about is obsessing over the last dollar of money you can monetize and exiting with the most money, you're bound to sort of regret that at the end. What you really, I think, need to do is also think about, like, what are you excited to go do? And that's going to give you the stick the intestinal fortitude to get through the process of selling your company, which can be incredibly difficult, stressful, tiring. If you're not clear on what you're excited to go do next, I don't think you're going to end up getting through the process. And if you do, you may end up regretting it. And so I think it's all about the pull factors as opposed to the push. It sounds like you're getting to the, what you call the happy, rich, or famous paradox. <laughs> Tell me yeah. about that. Yeah, happy, rich, or famous. Look, you know, it relates to some psychographic research we did a long time ago, but where we segmented the small business market into three different types of behavioral personas, psychographics, motivations, effectively. We call them mountain climbers, freedom fighters, and craftspeople. So mountain climbers are motivated by growth, right? They're motivated to have a big company, become the next Shopify, achieve something amazing. Freedom fighters are motivated by independence. So they're really not interested in creating like massive businesses, but they would love to really build something that doesn't depend on them, that creates the kind of wealth and independence that they aspire to have. And then craftspeople are motivated by mastery. So mastery is like being recognized as being like incredible what you do. So it's the hairstylist who you would never go on a, you know, a major function without seeing that hairstylist first. And you tell them that and their eyes light up because they have so proud that you think of their service that highly or the, the photographer that, you know, that's a mastery and that's craftspeople. What we know from the research is some of the happiest owners are actually craftspeople. Yeah. They're the ones who are doing their craft and they are interacting directly with their customers and they are having their sort of purpose and ego sort of satisfied by what they do. By the way, they also grow the smallest businesses, least valuable and economically fare the worst, but they're happy. <laughs> but they're happy. So that's happy. Yeah. <laughs> Famous are the mountain climbers, right? We've all heard stories about, you know, the mountain climbers who build these fantastic businesses. When you unpack the sheets of these businesses, what we learn is that oftentimes they've given up a tremendous amount of equity. And to fund their sort of ego to build this very big company, they have unfortunately given up more equity, in some cases, actually wiped themselves out. I remember one of the people I interviewed on the podcast was a guy named Rand Fishkin, who built a company, had an acquisition offer of $25 million, turned it down because he wanted to build the next HubSpot. HubSpot was the company that was looking to acquire him. Anyways, long story short, Rand, instead of taking on, you know, selling his company, he raised venture capital. Venture capitalists came in and said, oh, we got to get in all these different product lines. They started to spread their capital out much, much more thinly than they should. The company started bleeding cash. They removed Rand. Now, the way venture capitalists invest is they use preferred shares. They're guaranteed a return 
before Rand gets anything. I said, I want to interview him. I said, what are your shares in your company worth? He's no longer the CEO. He's just a shareholder. And he said, John, they're probably not worth anything. And I'm like, what do you mean? No. And he's like, well, I'll be washed out because they'll get a preferred return. And I said, yeah, but your company's a huge success. And he said, yeah, but my shares are probably worthless. And I said, but what would that offer be worth that HubSpot offered you $25 million? And he said, today, based on the appreciation of HubSpot stock, it'd be worth close to $200 million. So <laughs> that's what can happen to a mountain climber if they focus exclusively on just growing the top line because they have this sort of aspiration to grow a, a very big company. And then there's rich. Rich are the people who find some corner of the market quietly build a very profitable, highly differentiated company, and then exit from that company. And these are the companies that acquirers love to buy because they've got one thing that they do better than anybody else. And then we talked about on our last episode, it's something that they, they can draw the conclusion that it's better and cheaper just to buy the business than it is to compete with. And so oftentimes they're, you know, the sleepiest non, you know, companies you've never heard of run by people you've never seen before are some of the most valuable because they own hundred percent of the equity and they're in some corner of the market where they can kind of define their, their pricing terms and their profits and margins are, are fat. So it's this whole happy, rich or famous conundrum that we all have to sort of deal with wow. as entrepreneurs. <laughs> I opt for the sailboat. I'm, I'm loving the sailboat. <laughs> yeah. So um, you also have something you call the ego test. What's the ego test? Well, I think the ego test just goes back to the same uh, point I was just referring to. And that is at some point we need to ask ourselves is fueling our ego. In other words, being, you know, the cover of the Globe and Mail or, or being written about or being celebrated by the Canadian media. Is that more important than building a more valuable company? And again, it's this sort of fork in the road where you have to ask yourself, do I want to be well-known and be acknowledged when I show up at an EO meeting or a chamber of commerce meeting or whatever, or do I really want to focus on building value? And I think if you're focused on the latter, you just make some different decisions. And I think one of them is ensuring that your own personal profile remains relatively low compared to your company. Now, look, I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs can be the spokesperson for their business. In many ways, I'm still the spokesperson in a subtle way for Value Builder. But I think that the hero of the story always needs to be the company, not the person. Yeah. And so I think of someone like Elon Musk, who is a, you know, a massive personality, right? The price of Bitcoin moves by 10% whenever he opens his mouth. But the hero of his story is always Tesla, is always SpaceX, is the brands. They supersede, I think, him. And I think he's careful to make sure that happens. So as we think about our own personal role in our company, I think the famous Richard or happy decision is one thing. The other is making sure as we think about our own personal roles that ego doesn't sort of start to get away from us and that the company is always the hero of our kind of hero's journey story. Yeah. Okay. So in your work, you've come across many business owners, many of whom are happy, I'm quite sure, <laughs> but I'm sure some have sold and have regret. Can you tell me about that and, and how can that be avoided? Yeah, I mean, Bobby Martin comes to mind. Bobby Martin was and is a wonderful entrepreneur who built a company called First Research. And he and I actually kind of knew one another. We were 
kind of quasi-competitive in our research companies. Not directly competitive, but we were at the same trade shows and we were kind of new one another. And truth be told, I was always a little envious of Bobby because Bobby was one of those guys who he just treated his employees like they were friends, right? And I could never get past that. I always had this kind of wall between my employees. But Bobby was, you know, he was always hosting barbecues and like kind of slapping everybody's back. And everybody was, it was all kind of very sort of frat-like in terms of its sort of demeanor, his demeanor. There were always lots of fun and everybody seemed like they were having a good time when I show up at Bobby's trade show booth, for example. Anyways, he built this great company, six and a half million dollars in revenue. And based again on this culture of real sort of jocularism, so to speak, that's even a word, I don't know. And along comes Dun and Bradstreet, big American data provider. And they offer him, if memory serves, $26 million for this $6.5 million company. It's like life-changing money. He's, a, he's yeah. still a young guy, but it was, it was just like mind-blowingly incredible. And again, a crazy valuation multiple, like again, four times or whatever revenue. And so what do you think Bobby does? Takes the money. Of course. Right. And like anybody would. I don't, I'm not, you know. Multiple sailboats. Sailboats for yeah, everybody. A whole fleet of <laughs> sailboats, right? And then he goes to tell his employees and he's expecting them to be happy for him. Yeah. No. And they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah. We were friends. We had barbecues together. We were we were building this together and you just sold it out from under us. And he told me this story on my podcast and it's still one of the most memorable and, and thought provoking episodes that I can remember. But basically what he said was that after that, he had all the money he could ever want, but he felt like he betrayed his, his people, his team. And he went through a period of very deep depression. He became in fact, separated from his wife and three kids. Like it was a really, really dark and dangerous time for him uh, he was able to pull himself out with some medical help, frankly, and some, you know, some great professionals around him. And he's now gone on to be successful. He wrote a great book called Hockey Stick Principles. So he's like, he's been successful and, and kind of gotten through this. But what I took away from the story is one of the most important things we need to think through as owners is how our team will be impacted by the sale of a company. Now, that's not to say you need to share equity with your employees, or you need to give all the proceeds away to your employees, or you need to tell your employees. All those things are usually, in fact, a mistake strategically. But I do think you want to be proactive and say, you know, are there people who I want to reward and thank disproportionately? How will I tell my team? What is the story? Will I look for an acquirer who's going to guarantee that my team is going to be able to work in the same location or for a period of time, guarantee their jobs. Like, again, when you get into the negotiations, oftentimes we just become wrapped up in the momentum of the deal. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, we're three days away from close. You got to tell your people. And you're like kind of scratching together some PowerPoint presentation and it's usually ham-fisted. And again, it's one of the biggest regrets I think entrepreneurs have is the way they tell their employees and some of the behind the scenes sort of rewards they choose to give those employees. Again, I don't think there's any right or wrong answer to whether or not you choose to reward your employees. And in a, in a funny way, like I think, you know, if you paid your employees a fair salary and you've given them promotions and you've given them a safe work environment, like you don't owe them anything. You could choose to give them anything, but I don't think you actually owe them anything. But I do think being really proactive and thoughtful about that piece of it is really important. 
So before I let you go then, any last thoughts you'd like to share with us? Well, I mean, I think, look, we talked about a lot over the last couple of episodes. I think if there's one sort of maybe overriding or sort of theme that runs through both episodes and all of the, what we've spoken about, it's that for your company to be truly valuable to an acquirer, I think it has to succeed without you. Mm. And that's sort of a, it can be a bit of a head scratcher for a lot of business owners, a lot of very proud entrepreneurs who are, who frankly like the fact that their business is dependent on them. It's, it gives them a sense of purpose. But again, if the goal is to transfer it to somebody and to sell it for maximum dollar, I think somehow it's got to be able to to sort of live without you. And I know a lot of people listening to this are parents. I know you're a parent. And so we've all had that role of parenting our teenagers, right? Where in the beginning, they're just like little babes and like they're, they're totally dependent on you for everything, right? Their food, their, like everything. And then as they grow, there's this weird period where they're kind of adolescents, right? They're kind of still dependent on you, but they're really looking for their independence. And like, you're kind of hoping that they find their independence. And for many of us as parents, like, our greatest aspiration would be to see our kids become happy, successful adults. They don't have to be, you know, the head of the United Nations or, you know, the head of some massive company. If they're happy and successful and living independently, we're happy. And I think for a lot of owners, if we just put our parent hat on for a moment and think about our business as our child and say, at the end of the day, you're your business's parent. And the ultimate goal of a parent is not to keep the kids at home forever, right? It's actually to get it to the point where they can kind of go off on their own and live happy, independent lives. And I think if we start to make decisions as business owners with our parent hat on and say, yeah, I could take that next contract, I could win that next client, but if it's going to make my business more dependent on me, maybe it's not worth it. I think that's a really important sort of mental space to, to play in and to think about and try on for a lot of entrepreneurs is just to think about your company as your child and your role as the CEO is really more of a parent and getting it to live without you. I love that. That's a great analogy. Selling your business is a long process, but applying some of the best ideas discussed today can lead to a happy and satisfying exit, maybe even a sailboat. If you need support, <laughs> if you need support, please do reach out to your Richardson Wealth Advisor. Subscribe to John's podcast, Built to Sell Radio, and find more information about his books, The Value Builder System, on John's website, builttosell.com. Please visit our website for more articles and videos for business owners, and remember to follow Richardson Wealth on LinkedIn for the latest in wealth strategies. Conversations on Wealth is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, John. It's been fun. Thanks, Sarah. It was fun. And join me again next time.